This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm from Prague. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji, and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki, and I live in Paris. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm from New York. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I am Ola Banji. Hey, I'm Jeremy. Hi, I'm Hanno. All right, and this is Carbon Sessions. So here at the Carbon Almanac Network, one of our key ideas, both behind the book and the community, is that to really create change, we need to have useful conversations. And useful conversations requires knowing the facts of whatever you're talking about. So today we have uh, we have a guest who thinks, writes about, and excavates those facts for a living. So we have Hannah Ritchie here from Our World in Data, a nonprofit dedicated to publishing research and data to make progress on the world's greatest problems. So outside of Our World in Data, Hannah also does a lot. She's given a TED Talk this summer. She, uh, she's been writing a book, which we'll get into. And she's also writing a, a weekly-ish newsletter, which is really great. I highly recommend it. I read all of these, uh, all of these new dispatches. So first, Hannah, I want to say uh, congratulations on the announcement last week uh, from Vox for being part of the Future Perfect 50. It was uh, really cool to see you with uh, all, of the, all of the others uh, in the cohort. No, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a big surprise to me as well. Like they tell you like a day before, hey, you're going to be announced tomorrow as on this list. So yeah, it was a great privilege. And there's like other amazing people on the list, especially on like climate stuff um, that I really admire. So it's like a pleasure to be next to them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, I was just like reading some of the people on the list and yeah, it was like a really, really cool, like suite of people doing, uh, doing really great stuff. Okay. So I wanted to start off this conversation really about the the book that you've been writing and getting ready to publish uh, in about a month from now. And what I wanted to ask you is this book, it's called Not the End of the World. It's a book that you wrote kind of for for others, but also for a younger version of yourself, you wrote that it's like the it's the book that you wish you had when you were younger. So what I want to ask at the beginning is just when did this book start percolating within you? Was it something that like when you were younger, you're like, OK, I, I, I wanted to write something and then you didn't really know what shape it was going to take or did it just come more uh, like within the last few years? Yeah, so I think I've always loved books. I've always liked reading. I've always loved writing. And I, I think when I was younger, I always saw that maybe someday I would write a book. That was kind of the dream. And I think even when I was deciding, like, when you get to that fork in the road, like after school and going to university, I think there was two paths. One, I could go down a very scientific path, or the other was I was really interested in writing. And I could see myself maybe being like, I don't know, as like a science journalist or something. So, like, I also had this interest in writing. And I tried to decide, like, should I go for the science degree and then do writing on the side, or should I go for the journalism degree and try to learn science on the side? And I decided I should go the science route and then try to just um, enhance my writing skills along the way. So, yeah. I've always had an interest in this. I think it came down to when was like the right time to write the book. And I think 
I think I had this kind of brewing for maybe a decade or so. Um, and I think it was, I, I, once I started writing it, I could feel like that. I think this is like the, the right time where I, I feel like I've built up enough knowledge and, and, and building the narrative around it that I can, I can produce like a, a good book here. Um, whereas I think if I tried to do it a few years earlier, I maybe could have produced an okay book, but I think it wouldn't had, have had like the full, uh, kind of narrative enveloped around it. So I felt like this was like the right time to, to go for it. Yeah, totally. And like one of the, like one of the things I noticed while reading, reading the book is that you aren't just, you do infuse bits and pieces of your own journey within, within the, the book, but really it's a, it's a book about facts, a book about data, a book about long-term trends. And like you were saying, it's probably a good testament that you waited for a while before writing this book. So you can really amass all of this, all of this knowledge because you tackle like a wide range of topics, right? Like you're tackling a lot of the big problems within sustainability, but this like touches on many different aspects uh, of our world. Yeah, so every chapter is a different environmental problem. So actually climate, surprisingly, is just one one chapter. And then there's air pollution, deforestation, food. There's like seven different problems. I think the key point is that they tend to all interweave together. So they're they're not like, it's not as if we're tackling seven completely different problems and we need 50 different solutions for these seven problems. I think the, the solutions often interconnect to one another. But yeah, I think I think a key part of this process was I didn't, when I when I started researching this stuff like maybe like five ten years ago I never ever came into these questions like knowing the answer it's been a journey of I have this question I'm sure other people also have this question what does the data and research tell us in a pretty objective way like trying to put the kind of subjective moral lens aside and to say like what does the data actually tell us about what's happening to co2 emissions or deforestation or plastics and and that kind of curiosity really spurred me to to try and find the answers and then try to to explain them but I think if I publish it a few years earlier I I don't think I would have had the complete package and probably I would have got stuff wrong yeah, for sure. This uh, this this makes total sense. Can you do you have like some examples where you have come across some piece of research or some data where like it really kind of went against what you would have guessed going in? Yeah, I think one of the key examples there um, is palm oil. So I did a big project for our own data looking at deforestation. And I think I, I had in my head, like most people have in their heads, is that palm oil is evil. If we want to stop deforestation, we need to stop producing palm oil. And that's kind of the the framing I had into my head when I went into doing the topic. And then kind of my perspective on that was turned a lot just by looking at the data and research and what experts were saying on this. I would have thought the solution to the palm oil problem is just a boycott boycott palm oil and, and not use it entirely and actually none of the experts recommend that and just to briefly the reason for that is that palm oil is an incredibly productive crop right in terms of producing vegetable oil palm oil is how you produce the most amount of oil using the least land so palm oil has led to deforestation that's irrefutable um, but the question is, if you weren't using palm oil to meet that demand, what would you use instead? So if you were to switch to a different crop, say coconut oil, for example, you would actually need to use more land to produce the same amount of oil, which would mean you would actually displace the deforestation elsewhere and actually would increase the amount of deforestation that you had. So I think you often, when you step back to look at the data and the research, you often find these counterintuitive findings, which is actually quite a bitter pill to swallow because we always have 
of these preconceptions and we want to find evidence that that confirms those and, and exacerbates those um but actually in this case the data did not tell me what i expected it to tell me yeah yeah i remember uh, yeah reading this part of the book and yeah definitely it's sticking out to me so i guess like one of the the th- one of the elements here about digging into data is also thinking about these knock-on effects, right? So like you're talking about palm oil and saying like, it's not just about like how, but, but the oil itself, but it's about like these knock-on effects of like how much, how much land do you need to grow, uh, to grow this particular, um, crop and like how, how, how does this like affect other parts of the, of like the whole supply chain for palm oil, for example. So I suppose this is also like a difficult, um, it's a difficult skill for many people to 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 build, or rather, it might take a long time. I mean, you've been doing this now for a while, and so you might like come across some some piece of data, and then you're like, okay, I have this piece of data, but what does this mean for the next like parts in the chain here? And for for someone that is just uh, is just starting out or they just might be um like say seeing a figure in the news or on television or something like this it might uh, like lack this context i guess for really understanding what's going on yeah i think i think the key point there is that i try to never just go with my gut or go with my intuition because even after doing this data stuff for a long time on topics that i know very little about or are coming new to I just, I don't have a sense of intuition for it. And I think most people don't have a sense of intuition for it. And I think that's fine. I think the point is you step back, you take your time, you look at the data to try and understand it before jumping to conclusions. I think what's really key, you you highlight a really important point. That there's often knock-on impacts, positive or negative in various ways. I think what's really key for me when we're talking about solutions in this space is that I think we too often are looking for this perfect solution. So we're looking for the energy technology that has zero impacts, that you don't need any land, you don't need any materials, it has zero carbon emissions. And I think the reality is that there's just no perfect solutions in this space. And I think we need to come to terms with that. And I think if we don't come to terms with that, then we really, really slow down progress because we we rule out any option that has a tiny amount of impact. So I think what's important with the numbers is to try and give a sense of perspective of, you need to just say, it has this impact compared to what? So if um, building a solar panel maybe emits a bit of carbon because you're using energy to do that, the con- correct conclusion is not, this is a bad option because it emits carbon. The question is, how much carbon does it emit compared to coal or compared to gas, which you're replacing it with? And the answer is way, 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 way less. So we should be pursuing those solutions because it just makes a massive difference compared to the status quo. But if we're expecting that we're going to find solutions that have zero impacts, then we'll just be looking forever and we actually won't make any progress. Yeah, I think that that's incredible. I was going to ask a dummy question, which was, what would you say the role of data is? But I think that you already sort of started to outline what the role of data is. I I mean, I wouldn't say ideally, but po- I mean, general thinking is that it's more like, well, you get the data and you um, set a course of action. But from what you're saying, it's more like, well, if you get the data, you have to do some thinking, you have to do some comparison, you have to do some interpretation of the data before um get into a course of action is is that is that it yeah i think the role the role of data there is to try to find some 
grounding and truth on what's going on and what options we have. I think I think what's really cool for us at our and data and also a bit in my communication on climate as well is that I think I think it's too often it's portrayed as just follow the science and that's what we, people would say with the data just follow the data but the role of science and data there is not actually to tell anyone what we should do because that's a much bigger question that takes into consideration what does the science say um what are the political considerations around that what are the economic considerations around that just following the data or following the science won't get you to a concrete conclusion of this is what we should do but what science and data can tell you is is we're on this course on climate change once we start to reach these temperatures these are what the impacts are and then it's actually for others to make the decision of okay this is bad what should we do about it it's about the data will will tell us um, if we want to reduce carbon emissions these are our options these are the most effective effective options and then it's about others to to figure out should we implement them what scale should we implement them at so i think that's the role of the data is to is to show show a range of options and a range of 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 futures and then it's for in some sense others to then decide we should do this based on the evidence that we have yeah this makes a lot of sense and I, it's something i like i wouldn't have appreciated as much like in my so i'm I, i'm like a have a scientific background so like me it's like very uh for like physics and mathematics and like thinking about these topics and then like kind of abstracting ways like okay the the question of like what you should do is is different and then it's like just look at the data but yes this point of uh you need to kind of map out the possible futures but this doesn't tell you anything about which futures you should be taking or you want to take or what most people will want to take so this is uh also so uh, a challenge. I want to ask you um, something I've been wondering a lot about is how do you get people to care about data versus their own perspective? So your colleague um, Max Roser has 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 this essay called like the the value of statistics and the limits of our personal uh, experience, and I thought it was it was bringing up a really good point of that we we can base a lot of our worldviews on just kind of our own personal experience of the people we talk to, but this doesn't necessarily, this doesn't necessarily represent the whole world or it doesn't inform us on some of these like bigger worldwide questions. So do you, do you have any thoughts on like how we can get people to care more about data, care about digging into the data? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, Max's article on that was very good. One point of his article was one, if you're basing it on like personal perceptions around you and your kind of personal story and maybe your personal stories of a few people around you, you're building like quite a narrow base of of understanding the world. But I think he also highlighted that you get this problem with media where um, if you think of it as little, I think the way he framed it was like little dots on like this black kind of black sheet and with the with with uh kind of personal experiences, you're building lots of dots around your little circle, like it's people around you. What you get from the news media is maybe little dots, but like spread really far out, right? So I might get a perspective of one news story in Thailand and one news story in China and one news story in the US. But again, these are just really, really small snapshots that don't let us build a complete vision of the world. And the only way to really do that is to to look at data, because with data you can essentially capture the experiences of 8 billion people, right? You can figure out what's going on with CO2, what's going on with poverty, what's going on with hunger. So data is really the route into understanding the bigger picture. Um, how to get people to care about it is is actually probably with great 
difficulty. I think one way to do it is I think what I found joy, I mean, I didn't start out as a data scientist. I was an environmental scientist. I think what really sparked interest in it for me was often these counterintuitive findings or actually just the the appreciation that like a lot of my perceptions were actually really out of line with the data. The way I discovered this was through Hans Rosling, who would do TED Talks, where he would basically show that all of our like really basic conceptions about the world were really wrong. And for me, that like that's part of where the joy in that came from was like strangely this joy of finding out that I was completely wrong. But then this curiosity of going out to find out like what does the data actually show? So I think to some extent it's it's playing on the curiosity to to understand the world. Okay. I've I've got a question. Uh, so I mean and I, I know you interact with people every day in the course of the work that you do. But what what is a random person's relationship with data like? Like someone that just comes across data. How, I mean, in your experience, how do they even approach data? What is the what is the most common relationship that people have with data? Because I think it. And the other part of the question is, what should our relationship with data be? Um, because I mean, on carbon sessions, we have pretty regular people listening to this and. They just need something that can help them the next time they come across something that we've discussed. So the, so the first question is, what what's people's relationship with data like? And then what should it be like? Are there a set of questions I should be asking before? Or are there like very basic tools that I can use to interpret the data? Um, like what, what, what does that look like, generally speaking? Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good question. I think... Most people's interaction with data, I would say, comes from the news. I think where people most frequently will will uh, be exposed to data is, is a statistic in a news article or on the TV news or if you get media uh, your news through Twitter or social media platform. It's like within a framing of a story within the media, I think, is where most people are exposed to data. Now, I think one of the dangers of of data is that as soon as someone uses a statistic or a number or a graph, it takes on this field of authority of, of course, this must be correct. Um, and I think that is actually a danger in itself because there are ways, I mean, there's loads of books on how to lie with statistics or how to manipulate data, which the number there might be actually correct, but it's actually given you a different framing or a different understanding of the situation just by leaving what basically what's been left out. So I think one, like when when you come across a statistic, I think some really key questions to ask are one, who's publishing this data? Um, is there, you know, some ulterior motive behind it, um, where you should be a bit more skeptical than normal? Is it an impartial source? Um, again, framing it in the context. So I think, and if you think about carbon emissions, for example, just a really good uh, barometer is considering like scale. So is it hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of tons. Like globally, we emit around 41 billion tons of CO2 every year. So if you're thinking about something and you see uh, thousands of tons of CO2, like we automatically think when it comes to thousands, oh, wow, that's really big. But in the scale of 41 billion tons, that's really, really not a lot. So it's trying to bring context into, is that a big number? And then I think another key thing is to, and it seems really basic, to but to ask, What's the what's actually being measured here? Or like, what's the actual definition of this metric? Because I think this can often trip people up. Where 
but the metric is actually not representing what they think that it represents. So actually a big focus for us, which seems really stupid, but on our world and data, we spend a ton of time with our top our, our titles and subtitles. Because people will look at the chart and they read the title and the subtitle, and that's how they perceive the data. So it's really core for us that when people are looking at a graph on our own data, they can immediately understand this is what this metric captures and this is what is being measured. And I think when you just see a number or a news article, you often really don't have that perspective. Yeah, and and what what stands out to me right now is putting context to the data. I think that is very very critical. Because otherwise, then we risk misinterpreting the data just with the example that she gave. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and this idea of not having numbers in isolation or data points in isolation, this can be very, very, very tricky to understand what's going on if you just have one number and no context around it. I think we just want, there's something, just one more thing on that is to also rather than just always look at like one snapshot is to look at the trend. Um, Cause I think that also really shapes um, your understanding of this issue. So um, like one example I might use there is, um, which is not related to climate, but we cover global health is child mortality, right? So the number of children that die every year is around 5 million, right? So that's horrendous. And most of those deaths are preventable, but just looking at that number 5 million, it gives you no perspective is that going up or down or things getting better or worse you may look at that five million and assume well this is just the highest that child mortality has ever been like the world's just getting worse and worse and worse but actually when you look at the trends like child mortality is falling very quickly so a few decades ago that was 12 million um and go back further in history and it was, it was even higher so i think it's important to understand the trend and the direction of travel so that you can frame that number within context is it going up or down are things getting better or worse and that's not to of course that's not to dismiss that five million doesn't matter or that we're in a fine position but i think actually looking historically and seeing that we have made progress that number is going down should give us a drive to say well we we won't accept that five million children are dying and we can drive that down lower so i think looking at the trend is also important yeah that's that's right i wanted to i wanted to pivot a little bit and and talk about um talk about sustainability because this is like one of the core themes in your book i mean okay we were touching on this already but um one of the first things that i that i learned um while reading your book was just this uh this very old definition of sustainability and how it like has uh, has multiple parts to it. Can you speak a little bit about this for uh, for for our audience? Yeah, so I mean, I think there are just multiple definitions of sustainability, and I think like it's very it's totally fine to debate those. I think as an environmentalist, my and my coming that coming at that from my background, I would often frame just sustainability as having a low envir- environmental impact, so we don't ruin the planet for future generations and other species on the planet as well but i think to me that that's a bit of a limiting definition and the reason i say that is because it's not just about having a low environmental impact for future generations i also care about the current generation right i care about human suffering i think everyone alive today should have access to like a a good high standard of living and actually that comes to the definition that's like a bit more like a conventional sustainable development definition, which has two halves. And one half is meeting the needs of the current generation. So ensuring that 8 billion people have a good life and um, not sacrificing 
opportunities for future generations. So that's about having a low environmental impact. So basically provide a good life for everyone without having a high environmental impact. I think the argument I put forth in the book is that historically we've actually never really achieved both of those halves at the same time. I think we have this notion that we've only become unsustainable in the very recent past. And I actually don't really think that's true based on this definition. And the reason is our ancestors might have had a a low environmental impact, but they did not have high standards of living, at least not by our kind of modern definitions of that. And the example I use in the book is is child mortality where for most of human history, between a third and a half of children were dying before reaching puberty, right? That's like unimaginable levels to, like we could never imagine those levels today, that half of children would would die. But that was like the reality for most of human history. What we've had over the last few centuries is almost like a tipping where human living standards have improved a lot and they've improved across the world. This is not just like a, elites have have. Um, living conditions for the elites have improved like child mortality has fallen across the world extreme poverty has fallen across the world we have education vaccines like we've made amazing human progress over the last few centuries but it's came at the cost of the environment so we now have faced all of these environmental crises and the argument i put forth in the book is i think we could be the first generation that does both of these things at the same time i think it is possible to continue human progress with a lower environmental impact. And I think that we would be, in some sense, the first generation to achieve achieve that. Yeah, and I mean, part of part of this in, in your book is you have this, uh, like this concept, of, I'm calling it like decoupling, where it's like these standards of living keep going up, but we can decouple these from kind of the, uh, you can call it like extraction of resources or like negative impacts to the environment. And I thought this was, this was quite a, Quite quite a neat idea. Like I hadn't really seen these these uh, charts before showing this, so I, I thought this was quite eye opening. Yeah. So I think if you take the example of of CO two, there, um, we've seen historically this really tight relationship that as uh, GDP, so as goes up, so as people get richer, they tend to just lead more energy intensive and carbon intensive lifestyles. And that's completely true. And that's what the data says. But what we are also seeing is that it is possible to decouple these impacts. So you can increase GDP or increase other metrics, which would be represent human standards of living with CO2 emissions. And the reason for that is you can replace the coal or the gas or the petrol car with Uh, solar or wind or electric vehicles so that your CO2 emissions come down but actually you're not impacting the standards of living in that country so it is possible with technology combined with economic and political solutions that you can bend that curve and actually decouple these two things so so then I guess my 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 like follow-up question to this is that this this idea of like we have this sustain sustainability with these two parts and this idea of decoupling means that we can keep improving the um the the lives of people today without uh, sacrificing those in the future. I wondered for you. This is not. This is not as much of a data question, or maybe it is. You can tell me if, if if it is more of a data question. But how do you balance these two? So like now, we're like okay, sustainability has these two parts. But how do we actually think about balancing them? Because okay, we could like prioritize the needs of people today, which is kind of I guess what we did historically, because you can't really think about people in the future when you need to like survive yourself. And now we have an opportunity to kind of like make it more balanced should we be shifting this more one way or the other like how how can we 
start thinking about this. I think there the trap you're falling into is that you're assuming that there's a trade-off. And I think what I'm arguing is that there isn't a trade-off. I think if you take the example of energy as as an example, the reason that we were never able to do this in the past is our options for energy were either you burned wood, which we did for most of human history, and then we discovered fossil fuels. So you burned fossil fuels. That were your only; Those were your only options for energy. We're now in the position where we have solar, we have wind, we have other alternative technologies. And the, the issue we were having, say, a decade ago even, is that these energy sources were too expensive, right? So you would have actually came to the conclusion that there was this trade-off because if someone's living in energy poverty, um, they're having to decide, do they go for the expensive solar and wind at, to help the environment or do they just increase their energy consumption, which would be like higher standards of living? We're now in the position where solar and wind are the cheapest energy sources. So actually, they are, they are in some sense, that's no longer incompatible. You can relieve energy poverty using really, really cheap, low-carbon energy sources. Now, the question there is, is at different levels of income. I think we're, for high-income countries, there's really no reason at all why we can't just quickly deploy these technologies and massively reduce our footprint. Um, I think the key for lower-income countries is because they are more finance-constrained is how can rich countries help? And there's two ways. One, they can directly finance those energy technologies. And the other one is... Um, by innovating and driving these technologies themselves, you push down the cost for lower income countries so they don't face this trade-off between do they have low carbon emissions or do they alleviate poverty because solar, wind or other technologies will just be the cheapest. Yeah, this 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 was a good point you made too in the book. Basically, like these decoupling curves, you can kind of shortcut for these uh, lower income countries where for, by, for, for higher income countries or yeah, for countries with yeah higher income, they can go and kind of subsidize or like make it easier to deploy these um, technologies uh, quickly. So yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for this perspective. What one of the one of the other parts in the book that you that that you you get at with sustainability is that we have like all of these different problems. You have I think seven in the book, um, seven like different issues that uh, that that you tackle, and that there's a lot of overlap between them. So can you talk about how like what like uh, helping helping for example air pollution can affect these other um, problem topics as well? Sure. Yeah, I think this is um, also a bit of a trap we fall into where we just see environmental problem after environmental problem after environmental problem and I think we we often are worried that if I make this choice for climate change am I going to make another problem much much worse so we can end up feeling pretty paralyzed about our solutions because we automatically assume that there's just like no no solutions that cover all of our bases and there are I think there are just like a core like five to ten different solutions that really cut across most of these problems if you take the example of of air pollution the, the problem of air pollution is burning stuff, right? You burn stuff and you produce particulates, which is air pollution, which is bad for our health. If you produce energy with, without burning stuff, then you don't have air pollution. So basically the, there's the, the, the core to that is that if you stop burning wood, which for some, for some people in the world is still their core energy sources like wood and biomass, but for most people it's fossil fuels. So if you stop burning wood and you stop burning fossil fuels, which is we can do, we have alternative technologies, then you address air pollution, right? You massively reduce air pollution. But you also have the same solution to address climate change. Like stop burning fossil fuels and you tackle climate change and air pollution at exactly the same time. 
if you take another example, eating meat. So a big uh, environmental impact is is global meat production, and, and in particular, uh, beef tends to be the worst in terms of its impacts. Um, you reduce your beef or, or meat consumption, you help climate change. To some extent, you also help air pollution. You help deforestation because that's the leading driver of deforestation. You help global food systems and food production. You also address biodiversity loss. So there you're hitting well, one solution. You're hitting five different problems at the same time. So I think these are the just core set of solutions that really cross cut many of our env- uh, environmental problems. Yeah, this is this is a really good point. Plus, it comes back to what you were saying earlier that you don't have to like we can do a lot without having a perfect solution. So for example, with this, uh, with the the point about eating, uh, eating less meat, uh, I think this is a, a really good point is just like, okay, if you eat less meat, uh, we can make quite a big dent in our impact, even if you don't have to make the, you know, the, the full, you go the full way of like just stopping eating meat. And like, I know you've, you mentioned um, like some, some estimates in the book that, that get at this, where it's like you have crazy amount of reduction by just having just a little bit less meat per week, but you still end up, you, you can still eat meat. Like there's no issue with this. You don't have to like, you know, shift your whole personal identity, which can be very difficult. Um, and you still get this uh, massive impact. So I think this is also a good point. So like just, we can tackle all of these problems at the same time, and we also don't have to. We don't have to settle for you know perfect solutions first. Yeah, I think it's like it's often about um, people starting down a particular journey or route. Like I think, like I, I, I never advocate that everyone should go vegan because I think for most people actually that's that's a massive step and it's like actually a barrier because they think oh, there's no way I could be vegan. But for many people in the world, they could have a meatless one or two days a week. Um, and that would probably be quite achievable for them. Um, and then actually from there, I think then it starts to build. So like you go meatless for a day, you realize, oh, there's actually like really good vegan products um, that I really enjoy. So you make it two days. And I think from there, there's a gradual process. But I think like assuming that everyone's going to jump in and go straight to vegan is just really unrealistic. Yeah, And, and I don't think that should stop people from taking action because sometimes... I mean, we feel like the action we need to take is huge, especially when we look at the magnitude of the problem. And it's like, well, there really is nothing I can do, so let me do nothing then. Um, but yeah, based off of what you said, it's it's really important that we do the much we can. Um, I have a quote that says, do what you can until you can do more. And when you can do more, then do more. And keep doing more until you can do more. Uh, so that's, that's pretty good. I think there's also just really strong like peer effects of like doing the action and then to some extent like talking a little bit about the action like the 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 example I use there is um like electric vehicles I think a decade ago everyone was really skeptical to buy an electric car because they didn't know anyone with an electric car they had no idea like is it hard to charge like do you just like break down on the motorway I think there's loads of these barriers that they actually need to needed to see other people buying them having positive experiences um, talking to the f- the friend that has got one and actually really enjoys it I think we're now in the position where a lot of those barriers have been lowered um, because people have actually just adopted it and 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 um, are chatting about it yeah and and just just to add to that, I think the other thing is if you find a cause or something you can do, even though you're you're an early adopter, it's okay to be an early adopter because 
then it takes a lot of early adopters for everyone to now adopt the solution. So it's it's perfectly okay to be an early adopter. I think it's like really crucial to be an early adopter. Like earlier, we were talking about this this uh, like trade off uh, discussion. I think the question often, especially for, I mean, I don't know what the demographic of, of the audience is, but I think especially for rich countries, there's this question of, I'm sitting in the UK right now, and there's always the argument of the UK only emits 1% of the world's carbon emissions. Like what we do doesn't matter. But I think there there's like another impact there. One is just the UK needs to get its emissions as close to zero as possible, especially as a rich country with a large historical responsibility. But the other role that rich countries can do is to be the early adopters, right? When these technologies start out, they tend to be pretty expensive and we want to get those costs low for middle and low income countries to implement them. So the role of rich countries or, or rich consumers is to be the early adopters and really force that curve downwards. Yeah, that's profound. And I guess like here, part of part of the issue sometimes, or maybe not an issue, but something to to think about is that to get say um, richer countries to to help um, these lower income countries, we have to have a sense, at least in my mind, that we're like you know a global species. It's like it's not just us in our country that we need to care about. It's like there's other people that it's rich really help to 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 help them as well. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, one is just working on global problems and caring about other people in the world. Um, but I think that gets like even more difficult when you're talking about like other species, right? Like if we can't even get people to care about someone like a human on the other side of the world, how do we get them to care about biodiversity loss? Um, so it's like it's, it's just very difficult. I think one thing I'd say on that is that uh, climate change is often framed as this like collective action problem where like it's never in like exactly in one single country's interest to act on it because it also depends on what other countries are doing. I think I think to some extent that's true, but I think we also only just need to really highlight like some of the like selfish and I say selfish in inverted commas reasons for for countries to do that. And I think that comes back to there's loads of local benefits to implementing the solutions that address climate change. So if you take electric cars for example, like a, uh, or, or like electric ve- uh, electric vehicles or investing in public transport. Like it's not just about climate. One you reduce local air pollution. If you invest in public transport, you have like productivity gains, you re- lower congestion. If you implement renewables, you get lower energy costs and higher energy security. So there's lots of like localized benefits that I think we also should really emphasize because there is this like collective action problem on climate um, on climate change. That's profound. So Liki's got a question here. She says um, she'd like to get your perspective on helping a grandma understand the difference between data <laughs> and rumors. <laughs> <laughs> or what her friends could have told her. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that. Oh, I mean, I mean, I I still have that problem with my grandma, so <laughs> I haven't solved it. Um, <laughs> I think I think to some extent it's it's very variable depending on like how people get news and where they get news from. I think there are some demographics where like the truth is just what their friend told them or like what the latest rumor is um i mean but i think there are others where um most of our um news consumption is online we have specific sources that we go to 
Um, I think they are, even when you're talking about online media, there's often a slant one way or the other. So like, I'm also still skeptical of going to a media article and seeing data, as we discussed earlier, seeing data there and taking that as the truth. Um, I think you can also frame like some of the data in some media articles as also a rumor. Um, so I think, I think it comes back a little bit back to what we discussed earlier of how to approach statistics, like what you should have in your mind when you're encountering statistics. Um, yeah. And I, like, I'm in terms of like rumor of what our friends could have told her, I think in general, I'm just like, try to stay away from building a worldview on anecdotes. Like, I think there are, I think stories are important and like they, they give you like interesting perspectives, but I, I try not to extrapolate and assume that, you know, what one person has told me is, is true at a broader level. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the world, the world's big. So like to really build a worldview, it's very difficult on uh, personal anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Hannah, for like the last uh, few minutes we have here um, about your newsletter. So you started it about a year ago. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the motivations behind this? Like why you're having kind of this like uh, this like more personal project outside of your work? Yeah, with, no, uh, I, I uh, about a year and a bit ago, I started this newsletter. I mean, it's you said earlier that it's weekly. Like I've tried really try to like keep it as close to weekly as possible. Um, but yeah, like I do this kind of like in my free time where I explore like sustainability issues, like through the lens of numbers. So like a lot of this stems from, I have, again, like I have a question on this and I want to look at the data to find out. And rather than me just doing that in private, maybe I should just put it online so that others can learn from what I found. So yeah, I try to tackle like really core questions that people have. Like I think the latest ones were like, are we going to run out of minerals um, for moving to renewable energy? And the answer to that is no. But like looking at the data to find out like what do the numbers look like? What does that tell us? rather than just jumping to a conclusion one way or the other. Um, I One of the reasons that I have this kind of personal project and not all of it goes on our own data is that I want it to be like a little bit more exploratory where I'm exploring a, a, a question kind of on my blog, like I get people's comments and inputs. I think like one of the great things about our own data, but also one of the stresses of it is that people go to our own data and take like, this is like the final say on this topic. And this is like the ground truth, mm -hmm. which like puts a lot of pressure on because we, we take yeah. that very seriously and want to get everything correct. So the, the blog is like a little bit more exploratory for me where I'm under like a little bit less pressure of like, this has to be like the absolute stellar standard. And I can, I can discuss issues on a, on a different level, but it all comes back down to the numbers. Like, Oh, I, I, I ground all of this and what does the data, tell us on these really common questions that people have about sustainability yeah and i i remember like one one of your newsletters in particular once i think it was a, a few posts you had which were about electric vehicles in um in colder countries so like i'm, I'm from canada uh it is very cold even right now and uh yeah like one of the main questions whenever i talk to anybody about electric vehicles here is like it is not going to work in the winter and i i've had like horror stories about people losing like half their battery um, like capacity uh in the winter or like having the car not start or like all of these now granted 
it does get cold here. Like it gets very cold. So like I, I, I can believe that there are definitely issues versus like in warmer, um, in warmer places. But you had this series of posts where you were looking at the performance of uh, electric vehicles in colder countries, Nordic countries, if I remember correctly. And even there, I was quite impressed by how, like how little the, the, the degradation of in performance was like okay it's not quite as cold as here some days but like it was still pretty cold the in the 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 regions you looked at so i i thought this was quite the, yeah I, and i think part of the motivation for for doing the blog is that i think to people there are loads of these like really common questions and like going into that i had no idea how much the range dropped in a electric car battery in the cold but i i wanted to know the answer and i I tried to to find the answer in the data. I think what I've also seen recently is I think there's been like a significant uptick in the media and and like disinformation on on like renewables, on electric cars, on the latest one is like heat pumps, where like a lot of these claims are trotted out and loads of people believe them, but actually that's just not what the data says. So I tried to like build a base where if people want like fact based. Um, answers to these questions they can come come and find it now i was just going to say like another reason to like also bring in the the context bit that we discussed earlier is that like petrol cars also suffer in the cold is they their um performance yes, also drops yes. so it's like it's uh again the, the incorrect framing of um assuming that okay electric car battery is suffering but a petrol car is fine and that's that's not true yeah uh as someone who has recently had car troubles, I can attest to this. <laughs> it's not been great, uh, but but yeah, like uh, what what I also really like uh, about your 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 blog is just you have, well, I mean, again, you're presenting the this data, these numbers, but it's not just like you saying like there's this statistic or whatever. I mean, like you're 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 reading a bunch of papers and different people that have already worked on this. It's like it's not you. Uh, I think you probably mentioned this in your newsletter. It's like it's not you doing the research here. It's more the synthesis. It's like taking all of these different uh, like estimates and uh, different case studies and kind of putting them together to try to answer maybe a slightly more uh, like regular question yeah. that someone might have. Like how is the how is my EV going? My electric vehicle going to Oh yeah, I should say that like I don't do any of the hard work. They're like researchers that like properly do the hard work of like doing the research and, and the data. <laughs> Actually, it's also true for on our own data. Like we rely really heavily on on amazing people doing the work of providing the data, doing the research. Where we see ourselves, um, and where I see my blog is like we almost see ourselves as like translators, of, like this bridge between the research and then the general public or policymakers or journalists. I think we have a an issue in mm. science where there's loads of people doing amazing work but like the results never get out into the world where they can be used so a, a core part of our work is to be this like bridge and this yeah. gap in the middle where we we bring the the important results to people who can then put that into action yeah and i suppose probably over like the last uh like decade or so you've been doing this you've probably gotten a better sense of what what makes say a good study what makes a good research paper because i mean okay you, there, there's a lot of science out there there's a lot of stuff that people do and you kind of have to like sort through it and say like okay even again this idea of just because there's a number that's out there doesn't mean it's authoritative even within science itself like unfortunately but 
case because we're all human. Um, so, so like even sorting through this is also also an important skill that I guess you've built over these years. Yeah, I think being like really highly engaged with the the public has been really useful in one shaping like what are the core questions that people have. Like we can we can understand what do people misunderstand, what are they curious about. Um, and even once we've published an article, like looking at the, the comments and feedback, like it's not, it's not always like that pleasurable, but like understanding what are the main pushbacks against this? What are people like misunderstanding? Have we not been clear enough in some way? So I think like, yeah, doing this really close public engagement is really important for us. Yeah. Okay. So I see we're, we're running, uh, almost out of time. So I want to ask you like one last question, which is amongst your friends, are you the person they run to when they have any like data science questions? Like, are, are they like, Hannah, I have this question. I don't know how to answer it. Can you please help me out? Yeah, I can still, well, I can, I can, uh, associate with often like someone will say a fact or, or what they think is a fact or a number. And then they'll kind of give me like a side eye <laughs> of like, is she going to support this or is she like raising her eyebrows? So uh, yeah, <laughs> I think they, they wait for my level of skepticism about whether that, that fact is actually correct. Um, yeah. All right. Awesome. So, so yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah, for uh, taking the time, um, for coming on carbon sessions today. Again, uh, your, your book's coming out in January. It's on January. What? Uh, the U S is January 9th and the UK is the 11th. All right. Awesome. So yes, check out, check out her new book. It's really good. Uh, and also check out, check out Hannah's newsletter, which, uh, which uh, comes out again weekly-ish. It's uh, it gives you a nice uh, data-driven way of uh, seeing the world and just answering a bunch of questions. So again, thanks Hannah for being on the podcast. And uh, do you have any any uh, thing you want to say as, uh, as closing out? No, just thanks very much for having me and keep working on the solutions. Thank you so much. All right, awesome. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again, as together we can change the world.